Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Lyle Southwell. This morning, in our men's prayer group, we have a men's prayer group that meets here early on Sabbath morning. Kelvin shared a passage. I don't even remember where it is, except for it was in Isaiah somewhere. And it started my mind on a train of thought that I wanted to use as a, well, I decided to use as I was sitting here and meditating and praying about today's message as an introduction to today's subject. And yeah, I don't even remember how it goes, but it talked about the greatness of the universe. And you know how when somebody's reading the Bible and, and there'll often be just this one little verse that, that the Holy Spirit draws out and it draws it to your attention and you sort of sit there and start to think about it and meditate on it. And then in the process of that, you sort of you miss the rest of what he read. And I don't remember what else he read. But I was talking about the greatness of the universe and that started thinking me, started me thinking about, you know, the smallness of us in that universe. Which took me back to a time when I was 15. And when I was 15, I was, uh, and I'm just going to share a, just a little short version of my own personal testimony this morning. I was living alone. I was living in an abandoned apple picker's hut with no running water or electricity. And for a young 15-year-old, that was the greatest adventure imaginable. But at the same time, while I refused to actually acknowledge it, it was somewhat daunting. Now, there's, as you can imagine, there's a bit of a story that goes behind that. Short version is my mother died when I was young. My father remarried. I was 15 years old. The whole uh, step-parent thing just wasn't really cutting it. And so I left school and I left home and I went and lived out in this abandoned Applebiggers hut that was in the process of turning back to Mother Earth and I, and I lived this lifestyle that was um, half feral and half redneck if you can imagine that. <laughs> um, but I was pretty lost. In fact, I was incredibly lost. I didn't even realise just how lost I was. I started an apprenticeship as a cabinet maker and uh, I did my trade as, as a cabinet maker and here I was, you know, I'd, I'd grown up in a, in a Christian home, in an Adventist home, in a country environment, a country school, you know, probably the, 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 just the, the textbook perfect environment, if you can imagine that. And suddenly it was all gone, the whole lot, in one go. And it actually really rattled me. I was now, you know, in a, in a workshop with a bunch of guys that, you know, during their smoke time, they pretty much talked about um, how much they drunk on the weekend, what drugs they took on the weekend, and who they claimed they'd slept with on the weekend. Most of those claims, I'm sure, being false, but that's beside the point. And expecting me to join in and, to, you know, fit in and be one of the guys, and, you know, you know how it is, and, 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 and you always want to fit in. And for me, that was a big crossroads that was very confronting. I was alone. These were my new social network. I wanted to fit in. I was a little bit rattled. I was a little bit scared. 
And even though I don't like to admit it, I was incredibly lost. But the good news is, is that that is where Jesus found me. You know, and as Kelvin was reading that passage this morning, and it just, it just, it just brought it home to me, you know, why would, why would Jesus come looking for me? You know, lost and alone. And, and, and who was I? Just this kid. This is down in southern Tasmania in the Huon Valley. It's the promised land for those who haven't been there. You need to, if you haven't been there, you need to add it to your must-do list. But it reveals to me the love of God, the incredible love of God, and just how much He cares for every individual. By the light of an open fire and a kerosene lantern, I started to read the Bible. And uh, the first book that I read was 1 John. I love, I love everything written by John. I find John to be a simple fisherman. And he just writes things down simply. Um, other people love Romans because it's deep. And they love everything that Paul wrote because it's deep. I'm not a very deep person. I'm a very simple person. And, and so I love everything that John wrote. And he just writes simple stuff. You know, just states it how it is. I'm like, okay, I get that. I understand that. I don't have to dig too deep. It's clear to me. And so I became a big fan of uh, anything that John wrote. And uh, I picked up a book, a little paperback version of a book, a great controversy that I had laying around. I had no idea where. You all remember that, that edition that came out that had the world on it with the two hands on either side? Do you remember that? Yeah, that was, um, that was the edition that I found. I started to read that, and I've got to tell you, that was the most life-changing experience I've ever had. By the time I finished reading that book, I was a different person. If you haven't read it, it is sensational. It is phenomenal. Probably the chapter that affected me the most was the one called The Scripture's Our Safeguard. I remember I know that by the time I finished reading that chapter, I was a different person. I knew exactly who I was. I knew exactly what God had called me to do. I knew exactly where I was going in my life. And even though I lived in that dumpy little place for the next five years, it was clear to me that God was going to do, you know, I was was there to serve God. It's funny, we used to have... um, we used to have small group Bible studies in my apple picker's hut. I think it was a little bit of a novelty. We'd fill it up with people. We'd all sit around and study the Bible together. They'd have a big roaring fire. It was, um, it was great. And, and that in, very, in, in many ways shaped, I guess, my Christian experience. I tend to think that how a person comes to the Lord has a lot to do with how they grow in their understanding of God's word and how God then goes on to use them. I read The Great Controversy six times by the time I was 20 years old. And uh, just just sensational, just life-changing experience. And the Gospel of John and the books of, and the letters of John and the Revelation of John, I don't know how many times I've read all those through. But they are all wonderful. And that leads me to the passage that I want to share with you this morning. Because from that experience, I developed a real love for the prophecies of the Bible and for history, for understanding where we have come from, where we are going to. And as we consider where we are right now here in Maitland Church, 
And God's calling on us as Maitland Church. It's important for us to understand exactly who we are and what is God's calling for us. It's easy for us to, in our Christian experience, sometimes drift and to lose focus on exactly where God would have us to be and what God would have us to be doing. So I'd like to share a chapter with you from the book of Revelation this morning that I believe that will reveal this to us in a clear and in incredible way. And I remember the first time I read this chapter, I was just a very young person, just a teenager, and uh, I read it through and I thought, wow, that's a sensational chapter. That's exciting. I have no idea what that's talking about. But I set myself to study and to find out, what is this all talking about? What, what, what is it here? I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. And this morning, we're going to have a Bible study. Is that okay? Yeah. I like to have a Bible study. Revelation chapter 10. And uh, in this particular passage, it actually extends all the way through to chapter 11 and verse 2. But here in verse 1, the Bible says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, a rainbow was on his head. His, feet were like the sun, sorry, his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. You know, you can't read that and not be inspired by the grandeur and the majesty of it, can you? You know, when God does things and when he reveals things, he likes to do things with great power and drama. He likes to catch people's attention, doesn't he? You know, I love, the, I love the, uh, what, what, what we have here. The Bible says he had in his hand a little book open. He set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the earth. He cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars and seven thunders spoke their voices. In verse 4, he was about to write down what they said. And God said, don't write it down. It leaves a mystery there for us. And then in verse 5, the angel, which I saw stand on the sea and the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth, the things that are in it, the sea, the things that are in it, that there should be time no longer. Now you can't read a passage like that and not be gripped by the fact you have this mighty angel you know, clothed with the sun, as it were, a rainbow around his head, you know, that, that, that sign of that covenant of promise. And he stands and he holds up a, a, little, a little book in his right hand. I'll get my hand, my left and right sorted out here in a minute. Holds up this little book, places one hand on the earth, another on the sea, and makes this proclamation, time no longer. It's dramatic, isn't it? You have to ask yourself the question, what message is it that Jesus has for us? in this passage, that he goes to so much effort to present it in such a dramatic way. It continues on. In verse 7 it says, but. That's an interesting word. The very first word is but. That's a contrast, isn't it? So the angel has just stood there and proclaimed, time no longer, all but. Huh. Fascinating. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets. And so here we find that there is a but in the middle of this prophecy. And that but introduces us to the mystery of God. So let me ask you all a question. What is the mystery of God? 
Okay, God was manifest in the flesh. Somebody says the gospel. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's read it here. We're having a Bible study, so let's read it together. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19. We need to get this clear before we move on. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19, the Bible says, uh, Paul is actually praying, asking for prayer. You know, pray for me. That speech may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to know the mystery of the gospel. Why is it that Paul would speak of the gospel as being a mystery? How can the gospel be a mystery? I can explain the gospel to a child and a child can understand the gospel. Isn't that so? The gospel is simple. It's straightforward. Why does Paul say, oh, no, 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 it's a mystery? A paradox? Yes? How's that? Indeed. So we've got... We've got this paradox that, that you know, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. Absolutely. How else is the gospel a mystery? Let me... Sorry? That God would save man. You know, that comes back to the story that I started with, doesn't it? That God would be interested in... Why would God be interested in me? You know, everything that I have today that is a blessing to me, I have as a result, and I know this, as a result of that decision that I made when I was 15 years old to give my life to Jesus Christ. I have, as a result of Jesus leaving the courts of heaven, coming down to this earth, looking around the world until he found Tasmania. Yep, not all mainlanders know where it is, but God knows where it is. Found Tasmania and he found me and he came into my little apple picker's hut and he said, I want to change you and make you into a new and different person, which introduces me to another mystery. In the gospel. And that is the power of God's grace to change a person. The Bible says that nobody can change. Leopard can't change his spots. But under the power of God's grace, a person can change and does change. And we see it over and over again. Isn't that so? We say God's grace come upon a person and we see that person become a new and a different person. And we can't explain why. We can just see it happen. It's like the wind, Jesus says, when a person is born again. You can see the evidence of it, but you can't actually see the wind itself. So let's go back to our passage that we're looking at. The Bible says, the mystery of God would be finished. Continues on in verse 8. It says, And the voice which I heard from heaven spoke unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open the hand of the angel, which stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and said, Give me the book. And he said, take it and eat it. It shall make your belly bitter and it shall be in your mouth as sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up and it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. And as soon as I'd eaten it, my belly was bitter. Now there's an unusual passage, isn't it? What on earth is going on here? Why would the angel say, come and eat this book? Has anybody here ever eaten a book? I'm glad. If you'd put your hand up and said you had eaten a book, we would get some help for you. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. So what can we learn about this book? What is, what, what, what is going on here? Let's, let's start to dig into it a little bit deeper. First of all, 
this passage is all based around the authority of this little book, isn't that so? It's on the authority of this little book that the angel stands there and he holds the little book up in one hand and he makes this proclamation that there will be time no longer and then continues and says, but in the voice of the seventh angel, which is yet to come, the mystery of God will be finished. So we know that he says time no longer, but there's an aspect of time that continues on. And then we have this this strange, sweet, bitter experience. It's not bittersweet, it's sweet, bitter experience that is taking place. Well, first of all, we need to identify what is the book that gives him the authority to make this statement right here. And the first thing that we learn about this book is that this book is God's Word. And we know that this book is God's Word from a number of different reasons. I'll just give you one if you want to dig further and learn more. Come and speak to me afterwards. The first thing that we notice here is that this is an edible book. Isn't that so? Now, where do we find an edible book? This is not an ordinary book. Jesus said to his disciples one time, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there is no life in you. And if you do eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you have eternal life. And I'll raise you up at the last day. And his disciples couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense to them. Their heads were going in circles. They were like, well, what on earth is Jesus talking about? They said, you know, this is a really hard thing to understand. Who can understand what Jesus is talking about here when he says, eating my flesh and drinking my blood? Does does Jesus expect us to become cannibals? No, of course not. So Jesus comes back and he explains it to him. He says, look, the flesh profits nothing. In other words, the flesh has no value to you. You know, you could eat my flesh as long as you want and all you would be at the end of the day is a cannibal. There's no value in that. It is the spirit that gives life. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And where do we find the words that Jesus speaks? We find them right here in the word of God. Isn't that so? Here we have an edible book. We eat it in every day as we spend time reading it and listening to the voice of God's word as he speaks to us. So there's the first thing that we learn about this little book that the angel is holding here. The second thing we learn is that he makes a proclamation. And what proclamation is that? That there should be time what? Time no longer. So we know that this is not just any book of God's word, but this is a book that is about the end of time. Isn't that so? Let's put that up there on the screen as we work our way through. It has an end time message. But then we have that paradox. We noticed before where the word but comes in. And we know this, that when the angel makes this statement, the mystery of God, the work of the gospel has not yet finished. In other words, there are still people to be reached by God's grace. And so we know this that it cannot be the end of time as we know it. The end of literal time. Because the power of God's grace has not yet finished its work. It cannot be the end of probationary time. And so what other kind of time do we find in the Bible? Well, we have in the Bible prophetic time. That gives us some clues right there. The end of prophetic time. All right, we're going to come back to that in a little while. Uh, We find that this book is speaking about things that are going to take place in the future. Makes a proclamation about the end of time. 
That draws us down to the future. This is a prophetic book. The Bible says that it's a little book. The Bible says that it's an open book. And when we start to put our clues together that we have here so far, we find that the Bible is a rather large book, isn't it? In fact, the Bible is a large book that is a small library of books. And so we ask ourselves this question. We begin here. and We have a whole bunch of different books that make up the Word of God. But how many of those books are prophetic end-time books? Not all of them. There are books of history. There are books of poetry. There are gospels and epistles and all kinds of different books. But not many that are end-time apocalyptic prophecy. How many of these end-time books do we have that have end-time prophecies in them, have a message that is based on prophetic time, and that we would call a little book and an open book. Once we start to narrow it down, we don't have that many options left. Until we come down to the end of the prophecy, where the prophecy actually reveals for us exactly which book it's talking about. The end of the prophecy is found in chapter 11 and verse 2. And we're not going to go into this in, in, uh, in detail. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll notice, actually, let's read verse 1 and 2. There was given me a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those that worship in it. But the court which is without the temple, leave it out, don't measure it, for it is given to the Gentiles, the holy city. They will tread underfoot how long? 42 months. Three and a half years, 1260 days. Where's that quoting from? Where's that directing your attention to? The book of Daniel. This is the first time that the book of Daniel is directly referenced. And I want you to notice that the reference here is in reference to prophecy. It's reference to prophetic time. And when we go to the book of Daniel, we find this is God's word. It is an end time book. It is an apocalyptic prophecy. It has a message based on time. It's a little book. And the thing that I find fascinating, just as an observation, the Bible said in the end of the book of Daniel, seal it up. Until when? Until the time of the end. So here's what we know about the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, at the time of the end, the book of Daniel will be open and it will contain a message about the end of prophetic time. Isn't that so? Praise the Lord. Okay, so we'll put that one up as our last one, our last note there. We already mentioned uh, different kinds of time that you have in the Bible and by process of elimination, why we are speaking here about prophetic time. Now we need to look at the message that is carried. This is a message, time no longer, but it is associated with a number of different elements. Let's work our way through them, shall we? and see if we can identify what event we have here. Revelation 10, verse 6. The angel swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created what? Heaven. Heaven, and then what? And then what? The sea. Where else do we find that in the Bible? Revelation 14. Where else do we find that in the Bible? Genesis, where else do we find that in the Bible? And I'm looking for a verse that ties all three of them together. Uh, who, who says, somebody said Exodus. 
Exodus chapter 20. Yes, what does the Bible say? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea, fountains of waters, etc. And then we have that same passage quoted in Revelation chapter 14. And we have it repeated here in Revelation chapter 10. What part of the Bible are we being directed to here in Revelation 10? We're being directed to the Ten Commandments, aren't we? And in the Ten Commandments, what part of the Ten Commandments are we being directed to? We're being directed to the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath is a unique commandment. Unlike any other commandment, you cannot keep this commandment to any other God but the Creator God. The other commandments you can, but the Sabbath is unique in that respect. And we find it right there at the center of God's law. I find it fascinating how God draws a bullseye on those things that he considers to be of utmost importance. Have you ever noticed that? Have you noticed how there is a bullseye on the Sabbath? Think about it for a moment. In our world, and this is a big bullseye, it's the size of our, our, our planet. In our world, we have a place called the Holy Land. Where's that? Palestine. Within the Holy Land, you have a holy city, which is called Jerusalem. And within the holy city, you have a holy mountain, which is called Mount Zion. And within, on top of the holy mountain, you have the holy temple, which has a courtyard and then a holy place, and then a most holy place, and the centerpiece of the most holy place is the holy ark of God, and the centerpiece of the holy ark of God is the holy law of God, and the centerpiece of the holy law of God is what? You've all gone to sleep on me already. What is it? It's the Sabbath, right? It's the Sabbath. God's drawing a bullseye for us right there. And so here we find a message that is associated with the Sabbath. We find a message that is associated with the end of prophetic time. The angel has declared that time will be no longer. We know that that is not literal time because the work of the gospel has not yet finished. In fact, this prophecy ends by saying, you need to go and preach some more to the whole world. Well, we wouldn't be doing that if the end of literal time had taken place. We know that this is a message that is associated with the everlasting gospel. It's associated with the mystery of God. It's a message to give emphasis to the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, to give it a push right at the end. It's also a message that introduces a sweet, bitter experience, doesn't it? Because he hears this message, time no longer. He hears that the mystery of God is to continue, the gospel is to go out. And then he's told, oh, by the way, come and eat the book. And he goes and eats the book, has this sweet, bitter experience. But then we come on down to the end. He's he's told at the end of here, after the sweet, bitter experience, he says, look, you still need to go out to the whole world to share the everlasting gospel. But then it goes on to talk about measuring in the next verse, doesn't it? It talks about measuring people, doesn't it? What does it mean when people are being measured? That's judgment, isn't it? Yeah. So there's a message that is associated with the judgment. And so we ask ourselves a question this morning as we go out through this prophecy right here. What, what on earth could this be talking about? And when I look at this list right here, do you know what I see? 
I see a message, a prophecy that is speaking about us here today as Seventh-day Adventists. And that makes me incredibly excited. Because as I started off with in, in, in sharing that, that story, and you know, Calvin started that, not me on that mindset, you know, of, of how small we are in such a great universe, and yet God saw us. He saw us as Seventh day Adventists. He saw us here in Maitland Church. He loved us and He gave His life for us. And then He called us. Because when I work my way down through here, and I mentioned before, I love. Two things I love in the Bible, I love prophecy and I love history. It's something you're going to learn about me because you know, those, those two things explain so much of why we are where we are today. When I work my way down through here, I see the Advent movement. You see, sometimes when I'm doing public evangelism or I'm doing Bible studies and, and people are like, oh, you're a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm like, yeah, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And, and, and sometimes I feel that we've developed somewhat of a, uh, an Adventist cringe. Have you ever noticed the Adventist cringe? Yeah? This is a terrible thing. You can't do any good with an Adventist, with an Adventist cringe. But, you know, but, uh, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And, uh, and people are like, oh, okay, that's great. And then, of course, they go home and they start Googling, don't they? Yeah, and they Google. And they find that the Adventist church exists because they had to, they made a big mistake back in 1844 and had to cover it up. You ever come across that? Yeah. yeah. Made this monumental failure that they then had to cover up. And then I read this right here. That would worry me. You know, if I was a seeker out there and I read that for the first time, I'd be like, yeah, that's a pretty powerful argument right there that, you know, maybe these guys are definitely dodgy, not going to have anything to do with them. So what's going on here? Well, let's think about it for a moment. Let's think about where we came from as a movement. We came out of a movement that was called the Great Second Advent Movement. That's a nice name, isn't it? Also known as the Great Disappointment. Not such a nice name. So which one are we going to run with? The Great Second Advent Movement or the Great Disappointment? Well, I'm proud to to hold up my hand and say I'm connected to both of those. You see, the Great Disappointment, and to give just just a little bit of history of what took place in the uh, early 1800s, there was a movement that swept our globe. Simultaneously, people on different parts of the planet began to stand up and preach that Jesus was coming soon, that we were living in the time of the end. Swept our globe, particularly in the northeast of the United States, but in many other places as well, including here in Australia, people began to preach that Jesus was coming in 1844. Why did they preach that? They opened the book of Daniel. They read the prophecies of the book of Daniel. They found a prophecy there, 2,300 years long. They found the starting point for that prophecy, which gave them the ending point for that prophecy in 1844. And they said, we found it. Jesus is coming back in 1844. It was an incredibly sweet Message. I mean, can you imagine? Just, 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 just think about this for a moment. Imagine if we knew that Jesus was coming back next Sabbath. Imagine how you would feel right now. You know, could anything be more exciting? Could anything be more precious than the fact that Jesus was coming back Next Sabbath, 
You know, it was the sweetest message imaginable. There is no sweeter message than the return of Jesus Christ. When you've received the message of his grace in your heart. And so this was the message that was preached. And of course, Jesus didn't come in 1844. And... It resulted in an incredibly bitter experience. You had thousands of people around the world prior to that date who were all ready for Jesus to come in the next day. You had a tiny handful that were left. Completely decimated the movement in one day. And so what's going on with this sweet, bitter experience? And why does God come back after this sweet, bitter experience? And say, okay, now that you've had this sweet, bitter experience, now it's time to preach again before many people, nation, tongues, etc. What was God trying to accomplish with that? Why would he allow such thing to happen? Was it a monumental failure? And is the reason that our church exists based on a failure? Because if we're based on a if we're based on something that was a was a was a terrible failure, then then that's a, a, a pretty terrible thing, wouldn't you say? You know, why, why do we exist? Why should we exist? Why should we even be here? Well, when people talk to me about the great disappointment of 1844, I like to think back to the one before that. When was the one before that? When was the great disappointment before that? AD 31. Let's go to the great disappointment of AD 31. Let's break it down and have a look at it for a moment. The message that was going out was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what Jesus told them to preach. This was a message based on prophecy. Now, of course, they applied a literal application to a symbolic prophecy. They misunderstood the daily service of the sanctuary. And they misunderstood Christ's heavenly ministry. And as a result of that... They preached that Jesus would set up a a, a kingdom here on earth and he would defeat the Romans and that they would be the next superpower that would rule the whole world. And they were excited about that. It was a sweet message. It was exciting for them. Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, the whole city turns out to welcome him as a king. And a few days later, what are they saying? Crucify him crucify him, and then what happened? He was crucified, and he died, and where a few days before you had the whole city ready to crown him as king and welcome him, now you had just a handful of followers who were left. And you have to ask yourself your question, you know, why is it that God allowed that to happen? How could he allow such a thing to happen? Why didn't he cash in on that big launch that he had a couple of days before and then do something big and, you know, and, 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 and really usher in a kingdom here on this earth? Or you know, Why allow such a crushing defeat? You know, why, didn't he, why didn't he just stand up there in front of them all and, 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 and preach day after day after day after day, this is what's going to happen. You know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. Now, he said that, but they weren't listening. But Jesus said very little about it, very little. A couple of words that they turned aside and he allowed them to do so. Why? 
What was God's purpose? What was God trying to accomplish? Well, let's think about it for a moment. Jesus was forming the foundation for the Christian church. Isn't that so? Yeah. If he had founded it on the entire population of Jewish people that welcomed him on the day of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, how solid would have been that foundation? It was built on sand, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just emotion. There was no substance to it. There was, it, was, it, would have, it would have collapsed in a very short space of time and there was a lot of people who joined it just because it was the popular thing to do. Or in case it did actually happen, I better be on the right side, you know, foot in both, in both camps, so to speak, making provision for themselves. And then Jesus dies and they're shattered and they're decimated. But there's a handful of them, a small group gathered together in an upper room. And this group were different from the rest. Do you know what made them different from the thousands who welcomed Jesus at the triumphal entry? They had walked with Jesus every day. They'd been by his side day by day. They had listened as he'd shared the Bible with them. And they knew and they had faith that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, but they were just distraught. Well, then we come down to the second great disappointment. When did that happen? 1844. Oh, did you notice the difference between those two? Yeah. The message went out, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was based on prophecy, it applied a literal application to a symbolic prophecy, misunderstood the yearly service of the sanctuary, misunderstood Christ's heavenly ministry. And what happened? Exactly the same thing as happened in AD 31. Now, friends, when I see that, I see God's method at work, don't you? And when I look back at AD 31, And I see what God was trying to accomplish in AD 31. He was building a foundation for something great. Isn't that so? So if he was using this in AD 31 to build a foundation for something great, then what's he doing using this for in 1844? You see, exactly the same thing. He is using it as a foundation to build something great. Praise God. Isn't that exciting? You know, when I see that there, as Seventh-day Adventists, we are not just another Christian denomination. You realize that? We are not just another Christian denomination. We are a movement that has been called by God that is born out of the pages of prophecy. That makes us special, doesn't it? doesn't make us different from other people. We're still sinners in need of a saviour like everybody, isn't that so? Yeah? But as a movement, God has called us into existence for a very specific purpose. Let's go back to AD 31 again. In AD 31, the mistake was corrected, wasn't it, after the event? Who corrected it? You remember the story? Two men, they leave the upper room. Where are they going? 
think, on their way to Emmaus. Two men on the road to Emmaus. Let's, let's go through it very quickly. And if you don't remember the story, come and see me later. Two men, they're returning from a meeting of disappointed disciples. They're going home. One of them's the leader. Jesus appears to them. He explains the daily service of the sanctuary along with a whole bunch of other prophecies. The Bible says, beginning at Moses. That's the sanctuary service right there. And the Christian church is founded on a mistake. And then you go back, I find this fascinating, to the history of the Adventist church. 1844, October 22, it comes and goes, nothing happens. It's, it's, it, it seems like the whole movement is gone, swept away. But there's two mean men who uh, are at a meeting of disappointed disciples. One is the leader, Hiram Edson. Jesus appears, what happens? He explains the early service of the sanctuary. And the Adventist church is founded in exactly the same way that the Christian church was founded so long ago. So why would God do that? Why would God, down through the centuries, say, okay, I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to start something again in the way that I started it so long before? There's a number of reasons why. Clearly, before October 22, if you'd have built a movement on the thousands of people that were a part of that movement, you have built a movement on sand. Why? Because there are a whole bunch of people who are like, maybe Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Okay, I'll be ready. Yep, Lord, please forgive me of my sins. Okay, I'm ready, just in case. Is that the kind of people that you can build a movement on? No, not at all. You need to build a movement on people who have been walking with Jesus day by day. Isn't that so? People who know the Word of God inside out, back to front, upside down. And because they know Jesus, they trust His Word. And with a movement like that, you can then start something very special to make a special proclamation. A proclamation that there is time no longer. Prophetic time has come to an end and Jesus is coming soon. You see, the Christian church exists to proclaim the salvation that is available through the grace of Jesus Christ. Isn't that so? The Seventh-day Adventist church exists to proclaim the salvation that is available through the grace of Jesus Christ. Isn't that so? And we are called specifically to proclaim that Jesus is coming back soon. Isn't that so? God has called us to a special message for a special time to remind our world that looks like it is falling apart at the seams that there is hope for this planet. So many people look out at the world, they look at the political situation, they look at the environmental situation, they look at the financial situation, they look at whatever situation you want, and they say, this world cannot continue, this world is about to collapse. And a lot of people, they look into the future and they see doom for the future. They see terrible things for the future. But God has called us here at Maitland Church with a message of hope 
A message that is attached to the grace of Jesus Christ who gives us salvation and the promise that He's coming back soon. A message to take to our world to say, no, this world is not facing doom in the future. This world is facing the return of Christ. Isn't that good news? I've got to tell you, friends, when I think about that, it makes me excited. Well, then what kind of people is God calling us to be? We look at what God was doing here. He was looking for people who walked with Jesus day by day. He was looking for people who trusted the word of God implicitly. Who when everything that was around them told them, you're wrong. Think of the disciples in AD 31. Everything that they could see with their eyes, everything they could hear with their ears, touch, everything that their senses were telling them, natural and supernatural, everything was telling them, you're wrong. But they're like, no. We don't understand what's going on. But we know because we've been walking with this, with this man for the last three years. We know he's the Messiah. And they clung to their faith. It was only a small thread, but they clung to it. The same happening in 1844. And friends, that is what Jesus is calling us to be today as members of this church right here. People who walk with Jesus Every day. And as they walk with Jesus and experience His grace in their lives, go out and share a message. Share it like some of us have been sharing this flu virus. Share it around all over the place. That Jesus is coming back soon, that there is good news for our world. Soon we're going home to be with Him. Friends, when I think about that, It makes me excited to be a Christian. It makes me excited to be a Seventh-day Adventist. And it puts a fire in my belly. puts a fire in my belly that has been there for a long time, ever since I first gave my life to Jesus Christ. A fire in my belly to see as many people saved for God's kingdom and ready for His return as we can possibly do before that great event happens. Don't you want to be a part of that movement? Praise God, friends. May God bless you all. This message was made available by Adventist Streaming. For more resources like this, visit adventist-streaming.org.
The Joe Newman family sang, Serve Him Now. Michael Lining will now sing, Go Light Your World. There is a candle in every soul, some brightly burning, some dark and cold. There is a spirit who brings a fire. 
ignites a candle and makes his home. So carry your candle, run to the darkness, seek out the helpless, confused and torn. Hold out your candle for all to see it. Take your candle. Frustrated brother, see how he's tried to light his candle some other way. Sing now, your sister, she's been robbed and lied to, still holds a candle without a flame. Carry your candle. To the darkness, seek out the helpless, confused and torn. Hold out your candle for all to see it. Take your candle and go light your world. Take your candle and go light. family whose hearts are blazing so let's take a candle and light up the sky praying to our father in the name of Jesus make us a beacon in darkest night so carry your candle run to darkness, seek out the helpless, confused and torn, hold out your candle for all to see it, take your candle and go light your tip lady who loves to share tips to help make your life more simple and hopeful. Is your life a mad race to who knows where? Then you're going to love my two tips today. Fires, smoke, burned landscapes, dry barren paddocks have formed the background to our life in the Aussie bush for quite a few months. But while walking on the side of a barren, dusty road recently, I just had to stop, look and listen. Who remembers being told to do that at school umpteen years ago? 
Stop, look and listen. Weren't we all taught that? Yes. Well, I did just that while walking along this dreary, dust-filled and smoky road. Suddenly, the sound of dry, crisp leaves rustling in the breeze made me stop. The sound was music to my ears. I just had to stop, look and listen and enjoy the gentle sound of nature quietly and unassumingly living its life. Somehow, even in those dreary surroundings, that tree gained enough nourishment to live and move and bless the passers-by. The person who needed to not only see but hear nature happily at work with its leaves rustling in the breeze. So I'm thinking today, stop, look and listen more. Listen for the simple things around you because nature will nurture our parched spirits and bring refreshment even when our surroundings are dreary, if we let it. So here is tip number one and it comes with a guarantee that will simplify your life. Here it is. Take time to stop, look and listen. In 2 Peter 3, 13, in God's word, he says, We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Even when our circumstances are less than ideal, and we're not in heaven yet, we all know that, there are things all around us that will brighten our journey to heaven if we stop, look and listen. Yes, listen too. And here's tip number two. Take time to visualise eternal realities. What do I mean? Look beyond our dreary circumstances, stop rushing madly sometimes during the day, and look at some of the wonderful promises that God's Word is full of about a world where there will be no sickness, no sadness, no tears, and listen to the voice of God speaking to your heart. If you will action these two tips today, your life will become more simple and hopeful, guaranteed. That's it from the two-tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.